Welcome everyone. My name is Devan Mangumurthy. I'm a student fellow at South Asian Studies Council at Yale Macmillan Center. And welcome back to South Asian Studies Council's occasional podcasts with South Asia's most significant intellectual voices. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Shahana Ghosh, Assistant Professor in the Department of Sociology and Anthropology at the National University of Singapore. Shahana, who graduated from Yale with a PhD in Sociocultural Anthropology and Women's, Gender, and Sexuality Studies in 2018, has just released her first book, A Thousand Tiny Cuts, Mobility and Security Across the India-Bangladesh Borderlands. It's a fascinating multi-layered study of a really complicated region and... To quote a little about the book's description, it chronicles the slow transformation of a connected region into national borderlands and shows the foundational place of gender and sexuality in the meaning and management of threat and security in relation to mobility. We're going to be talking about a couple key parts of the book today. Thank you so much for being here. Hi, everyone. Thank you, David, for the uh, introduction. Thank you for inviting me. I'm happy to be in conversation with you. And it's great to have you back in New Haven. Yeah, it's wonderful to be back here. I want to start with the concept you introduced in the title of the book, which mm-hmm. is this idea of borderlands. Mm-hmm. As you explain throughout the book, what a borderland is and even where we are is not exactly clear. Everyone seems to have a different sense of where the border lies and what a borderland is. Can you delve a little into that and tell us where we are and what we're dealing with? Sure. Um, you know, so to just take everyone to uh, the actual place uh, where the, of where my research uh, was conducted and the place I write about, uh, it's northern bengal so it's the uh, north of the uh, it's the northern part of the in, in eastern indian state of west bengal and uh, the northern districts of lalmonihat and kurigram in, in bangladesh and this is a region that was historically the uh, princely state of kuchbihar and so it has quite a uh, sort of historically a cultural uh, linguistic ethnic specificity to it um, it has a re- it's a region which has a very clear cultural identity of itself as a uh, kind of distinctive uh, region and a distinctive peoples. Um, both in the contemporary, so in in the present, it's in the, in the contemporary present, it's a region of multiple borders. So while India and Bangladesh, part of the four thousand kilo- over four thousand kilometer long border that India and Bangladesh share. Uh, uh, you know, of course, a, a large part of it runs through this region of northern Bengal. Uh, but borders with Nepal and Bhutan are also very, very close by. It's the the these northern districts in India are what's referred to as the chicken's neck, right? So, um, sort of, yeah, borders with uh, India's borders with Nepal and Bhutan are, you know, barely in parts like 20 kilometers, 30 kilometers away. And uh, Tibet is not far, uh, you know, very far either. Um, to the uh, east of uh, West Bengal is the border with Assam, right? So, uh, and then, of course, Assam's border with Bangladesh has a very particular a vexed political and ecological um, kind of history. Uh, so, just to give a sense of place, you know, this whole region of northern Bengal uh, historically also called the duars, the doorways, uh, in multiple different languages. You know, this is a is a place which is a very diverse uh, sociocultural linguistic um, region. And it's been while the, the border I write about is a, a partition border, uh, you know, ostensibly it seems like a very straightforward, it was uh, drawn uh, in 47 with the partition of the subcontinent and then redrawn in 71 when Bangladesh won its liberation from uh, Pakistan. Uh, 
we in this region in particular in northern bengal we must understand the border in relation to these longer histories um of the princely state of several independent autonomous kingdoms of several tribal homelands uh right and so uh, the idea of jurisdiction um and the idea of kind of uh, spatial entities that are distinct from uh, its neighboring spatial entity uh is actually quite common um that does not mean that these spatial entities have been borderlands and so that's where kind of my story and my focus my kind of analytical the uh, the the uh, story i tell historically is to trace the is, is a to begin with the assertion that we cannot assume that borderlands appear where there are borders right so with the drawing of the border in 47 we didn't just also end up you know we didn't get a borderland for free with the border so to speak right but producing this whole region as national borderlands borderlands that are uh, you know indian in quotes and bangladeshi uh, in or you know pakistani at first for uh, some years and then bangladeshi in quotes um is a very laborious process right which is ongoing and you know till the present i i argue um you know it's not that they were declared by someone as borderlands and that's it you know they woke up you know we woke up monday morning and it's a borderland and life and society and economy has been arranged accordingly no these are you know historically uh contested and complex processes of Uh, uh, of rearranging relationships uh, of land of territory of space of imaginary of identity um as that of a borderland space and you talk in the book about the different relationships people living in these areas have with the idea of being in a borderland or living close to a border can you talk a little bit about that and in particular too about the affective ties that crisscross the border and that maintain a sense of this is a shared place both in bangladesh and in india sure sure great question um and you know this this kind of uh, i would say tension between um a, a sense of shared uh, relations a, a, a sense of shared identity a a, a shared a, a kind of being together with uh as well as that being in tension with uh learning a uh, national identity and 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 coming apart or what i describe as different kinds of separations um are i think most are it, it, that is absolutely central that's at the heart of borderland life right this kind of being together and coming apart and becoming separate um and this this tension i think is uh very very sharp in two domains of life and i write their kind of run through the book and they're central to two uh, i i discuss them sort of very extensively in two chapters one is kinship relations and the other is actually the agrarian economy yeah and i'll give you two quick examples of both uh, from each rather uh so kinship relations this is you know as i've been saying this is a region uh in which the rajbungshi you know that the rajbungshi people and uh, uh in bengali rajbungshi and bengali muslim uh, uh people live um and 
you'd be hard pressed to find a family even where uh, you know there someone where that they don't have relations um uh, on the other side of the border and this is through uh, through marriages across this region which have now become cross border marriages right so they were they were there is this history of uh, all of these villages within these rajbongshi and muslim communities marrying each other uh, over time they became uh, across an international border but they didn't stop with that international border neither in 47 not with the war uh, in 65 they've been inflected these cross border marriages and kinship relations uh, if we you know sort of as i do in the book uh, trace uh, the history of the border a kind of biography of the border from um the vantage point of a family history right so if we take a family history and if we uh track back in time who married who from where we will see the um political events pop up right so we'll see 1971 pop up we will see the war of 1965 pop up we'll see people talk about uh you know the years leading up to the 65 india pakistan war when it was particularly tense or we'll we'll hear you know people mark marriages births when they either did marry or they didn't marry when they either either lost contact with certain parts of their family uh because the border was very tense and it was closed or when the border was completely opened in 71 because of the war and india received hosted uh millions of refugees uh fleeing the the pakistani army uh for years after even though you know at the end of the war the border was asserted and this was between the independent uh uh you know nation state of bangladesh and india uh dense there was a dense investment in cross border marriages but because people had just kind of relied on each other to survive war and displacement right so people intermarried tremendously and they expected there to be a, a great deal of mobility within that region right and we're talking about you know i think it's just again to give people a concrete sense we're not talk when we talk about transnational mobility we are thinking of you know across oceans and very much from the global south to the north here and this is very common for most parts uh, in the majority world right where we talk about mobilities within a region people are becoming trans you know these mobilities are transnational because of people are on different sides of an international border but we're talking about mobilities of 10 kilometers 15 kilometers 20 kilometers right so very short distance mobilities uh, of actual crossings uh, and journeys uh, but also of trying to find new ways of keeping in touch whether or not people are actually moving so trying to figure out how to keep in touch with my sibling or my uh, you know brother's family which is on the other side of the border and you know so on and so forth so kinship is is one enormous domain of life where you know which incorporates everyone right no one is outside that uh, that world of being touched by having relations on the other side right so your both intimate kin but over time over your own life course over a generation you're also within the family reckoning with okay my sister now on the if i live on the indian side my sister lives on the bangladeshi side over the course of our lives we come to see each other not just as sisters but also as indian and bangladeshi and their children each other's children who are 
first cousins uh, and typically would be you know very very close family also in terms of these national identities right so kinship is a is is a, this extremely uh, you know sort of all encompassing all embracing domain where people are together and learn to be uh, separate with these tensions um similarly with the agrarian economy you know uh, kind of growing crops um as we know from agrarian studies crops commodity chains are extensive right they're not uh, you know they travel over they're grown they over their life they travel enormous uh, spaces they move to markets to consumers and again in this region much like with kinship um uh producers sellers uh you know farmers uh, markets uh, are now then those networks uh, those spaces are now intersected by a national border which doesn't stop uh you know the two crops i write about in the book are tobacco and ganja they don't uh you know they continue to be grown and uh sold in markets um uh that have now become uh separated right so they they they're no longer markets of a kind of united uh, uh region or colonial or princely state um uh, space but uh become nationalized right so they're both in very you know literal small terms you buy and sell in different currencies literally in different notes which have different values so all of those differences then become part of figuring out uh for a farmer if i am to grow tobacco where do i where is it most worthwhile for me to try and sell my crop and there's there's a lot there to talk about and think about um so i'm going to have to pick and choose i want to zero in Sorry, on no no that's it's fascinating and it's really one of the reasons i think that this book speaks to literatures beyond south asia but let's talk about sort of gender and its relationship with the border with the militarization of the border on both sides and with checkpoints how are women and men of different classes of different castes of different religions and of course of different nationalities although at some point that becomes almost secondary to all these other identities interacting with border guards on both sides of the, of the border in the border as a presence itself great and super super important question so the starting point again i think to understand is that what we see happening here uh, is not a sort of conflict between state and society right so it's not that the state uh, in the guise of law enforcement and security forces come in and of both india and bangladesh come in and try to enforce the border and close the border and that uh, you know a, a kind of social world or residents are um, share in resisting that right of course state actors are invested in policing and closing and regulating uh, uh preventing unauthorized clandestine uh, mobilities of people and goods across the border but what it uh finds in the borderlands is not a homogenous group of people right so borderland so residents of the borderlands and and this is you know central argument of the book is that uh this very abstract mandate of national security what is national security what kinds of you know national security is that which is threatened by clandestine mobilities of people and goods at the border right 
now there's no uh, you know uh, sort of uh, kind of poster with pictures of who or what is is that but what those threats are what threatening mobilities are is something which is worked out on the ground every day all the time uh in the borderlands in these encounters between uh, state security forces law enforcement agencies and a range of borderland residents and between borderland residents themselves and i think this is in a way the most exciting and most uh, in a way kind of the da- most dynamic domain of um kind of activity and differentiation right and gender plays i argue gender sexuality along with class uh, and religious identity right so really very embodied uh, senses of who people are and what their uh, mobilities mean uh, produce how people understand right is this is the mobility of this this person with this good or these kinds of people and these kinds of goods uh, threatening to national security or not right so this is a question that it's not just state actors who are in the business of figuring this out but residents themselves are in the business of figuring this out for themselves and for each other right so everyone is super invested whether or not people i know I, this is not to say i shouldn't give the impression that everyone who live in the borderlands are like just running around clandestinely crossing the border a lot of people are not you know a lot of people are you know living in border villages uh, border ed- towns and villages have never crossed uh, you know or, or ha- uh, um, been across to the other side through any kind of clandestine mobility or but you the everyone lives lives that are either participating in or touched by networks uh, of mobility that cross the border uh, clandestinely right so uh, and are you know therefore participating in kind of gendered class relationships with one another that then uh, produce these kinds of judgments that i'm describing right these evaluations uh, and they're super so the the kind of evaluation of mobilities as threats um to national security are fundamentally relational right so certain and and by that i mean that you know certain gendered mobilities produce other gendered immobilities right so for some let's say for example for some uh you know women uh of appearing to be of a certain class or religious identity perhaps of a certain age to be established as you know i'm crossing people like us cross to visit only to visit family super innocent no economic interest no threat we're very uh, comfortable either bangladeshi um subjects or indian citizens and you know we'll come back to our uh, home by the night we're just going to you know visit so this kind of self presentation not just if you were to encounter um a, a bsf soldier or a bgb soldier uh, or the police but much more so if you were to encounter neighbors which you will along the paths right it relies on a a related construction agreement that there is some other kind of gendered mobility which is a threat right so it really produces men and women in relation to one another uh, and and uh, uh, goods and particular economies um uh, of goods uh, in very gendered ways 
um, as threatening or not in relation to one another, right? So the the sort of long and short of it, and there are several examples with which I show this, is that the uh, establishment of certain gender, uh, of a certain kind of mobility as a threat or not, uh, one requires on, uh, you know, uh, um, is is accomplished by being gendered in a particular way uh, and relies on the gendering of, a re, you know, related uh, mobility as uh, not threatening. Yeah, so it's that kind of um, contrast, by contrast and distinction um, that mobilities are gendered. And this occurs at different scales, right? Individual bodies, particular communities, uh, particular kinds of goods in relation to people, uh, and also at the level of the uh, national, right, in the region. So Bangladeshi goods or Indian drugs in Bangladeshi space, uh, and therefore meriting a certain extremely uh, militaristic uh, masculinist response from the Bangladeshi state, right? Um, it, it, it scales up to that level as well. Who's responsible for the generation of categories and how are they maintained and preserved and shared or transmitted? Yeah, great question. You know, so um, as ethnographers, often what we're interested in is exactly sort of your question, which is, uh, to to describe and show, uh, and what we find is that uh, the 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 production of categories um, is a contested space, uh, and categories are never fixed, right? And so much of the contestation is not just around uh, what is criminal, who is criminal. How should we understand, recognize criminality when we see it in terms of clandestine mobility, let's say, for example? Uh, equally, who is a migrant? You know, the kind of very charged political question is who's a migrant, who's a citizen, who's a foreigner? And how do we know these people? How can we put people in these categories when we see them? If I meet you on the path, how, how can I tell by knowing you, right? Then, then the point is that you can't. These are... Uh, uh, you know, extremely, it is impossible to fix um, very rigid categories because we're talking about real people and real relationships and real encounters, uh, which are very dynamic. Um, but the idea of being able to fix in categories, right, shapes an enormous amount of our uh, social reality and our political economy, right? Whether that is in terms of uh, you know, these political categories or, or these bureaucratic, legalistic categories of citizen-migrant, uh, foreigner, uh, enormous investments in policing uh, are devoted uh, with the assumption that we can fix people into these categories. But whereas, you know, both my work, but so much wor work of historians and anthropologists show how in the borderlands, these categories themselves are moving over our time and are more dynamic. To give a very, very quick example uh, with, you know, with what you asked about who's deciding these categories in a gendered way, there's an enormous amount of consensus across state society, you know, spectrum that I argued that rather than thinking of them as at in conflict, uh, he, sort of heteropatriarchy 
uh, ensures that, you know, I, I write quite a lot about young men coming of age in these borderlands uh, and the way in which um, the burden of this uh, gendering of threat, right, that threat is embodied in a, you know, finds embodiment, you know, right. So when people are uh, in, in trying to figure out uh, what kinds of clandestine mobilities um, are a, a threat to, to national security, cannot be uh, permissible and so on. It is often, it finds embodiment most prominently in that of the, you know, young man, uh, whether certainly uh, Muslim, uh, but also often Rajbongshi, right? So the young men from communities that live in these areas, but they are, whether they're Muslim or Rajbongshi, overwhelmingly uh, agrarian poor. Right? They're either uh, landless or from uh, marginal um, landholding families. Right, so what they share is a uh, uh, is a is our livelihood struggles. What they share is a world of agrarian distress. What they share is a world in which they must make very difficult decisions of livelihood and labor in order to reproduce themselves in their households. Right, so to be a good man then means that you must grow up, earn, marry. Uh, you know, maintain your family, um, uh, your parents and your, you know, new family. Now, in this kind of straightened world, young men have very few options, right? So you see the way in which very normative ideas of uh, uh, kind of heteropatriarchal uh, social reproduction actually produce the grounds in which uh, young men, young men's decisions then to take risks to, you know, either smuggle or participate in the illicit economies of the border, or to become migrants, you know, to cross the border, uh, to either cross the border and become uh, become migrant workers in in different parts of the country on the other side, or to move away from the borderlands to be migrant workers within their own um, uh, countries. All of these are, uh, you know. Uh, trajectories that men's lives, young men's lives take, and not exclusively so, right? So, the, uh, you know, a, a single young man might have taken, might have tried out all of these three, uh, you know, all of these different um, uh, possibilities that I just described. And so young men are thinking of these possibilities in relation to one another. You know, it's, it's not that a smuggler is a you know, is a person sealed off from a migrant worker, right? So when we when we begin to see how these are not uh, kind of stick figures uh, or fixed identities or categories, but these are real people, real, you know, uh, men um, evaluating the risks and dangers across all of these livelihood possibilities and trying to decide for themselves, you know, what is least risky perhaps at that point you know, point of time in their lives, we begin to see these in a very different way uh, as moral, ethical, economic, social decisions, right? And so really the 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 sort of heteropatriarchal ordering of social reproduction we see is not some private domain which is intimate to families, but we see how this absolutely co-constitutes the political economy of the borderlands in which young men come of age as young men who are then, you know, whose decisions uh, set them up as 
the criminals, right? They're the ones we see undertake, you know, who then become the the figures of the face of the criminality of the borderlands, um, which is certainly what is uh, kind of essentialized by the state. They become overwhelmingly the targets of state security and law enforcement agencies. Uh, but there's also social consensus generally in condemning, right? You know, don't that those are uh, bad boys or bad young men, right? And your um, only way to be good in the borderline as a young man is if you leave, right? And if you are living this life of, you know, perhaps terrible toil and great risk, uh, physical risk, uh, and very little economic gains, uh, but that's not visible because you're away from, you know, so that kind of spares you for, from a certain kind of moral judgment, right? Um, so that's what I mean, that that both borderland residents and the state are united in the way in which uh, policing and uh, kind of uh, moral sanctions work through heteropatriarchal and classed norms of respectability and expectation. And where did you fit in all of this? You are not from North Bengal. Yeah. You're coming from a very different place, a very yeah. different environment. And you touched on this a little throughout the book. Yeah. You take on different identities as a result of your own affective ties with the people hosting you, with your friends, your adopted kin. Sure. But also as, as a result of an absence of family yeah. and a presence of family. Yeah. Where are you? Sure, Who are you sure, to these sure. You know, this is a question that ethnographers love and we could talk about it for, uh, you know, till the cows came home. Um uh, so, yes, I, I think I'm very, uh, I think it's very important and I try to be as uh, kind of honest and um, make visible the extent to which who I am uh, and who I was, more importantly, who I was perceived to be, right, uh, shaped uh, what I could do, where I could be, who I could speak to uh, over this decade of, you know, my doing fieldwork, Um uh, in this in this region, and and I say that just to emphasize to remind us that there's a big dis difference between who I say I am and who I'm perceived to be. You know, so my name, uh, if I introduce, just to give a quick example, when I introduce myself as I'm, I'm Shahana in Bangladesh, uh, uh, almost everybody assumes I'm Muslim because uh, Shahana is a very very common uh, name in in. In Bangladesh and certainly in North Bengal, you know, every other person is a, a Shahana, Shabana, a Shabnam. And so then um, that would come with a certain uh, uh, reading of religious gendered signs of marriage, of uh, being single and so on, right? So I would be placed accordingly, uh, of food habits, of commensality, right? So uh, who I'm staying with, what food I'm eating, what uh, uh, customs or festivals I'm participating in, why I don't have my head covered, why I don't wear a nose pin, you know, would assume, you know, so these, these all of these markers by which people play, we, we do this all the time. This is, you know, this is to be human and social. Um, but it would reveal and get complicated, right? So, okay, you're Shahana. Oh, but you're Ghosh. Oh, so you're not Muslim, No. 
okay, so what kind of ghosh? So then there's a sort of caste placement. Are you this kind of ghosh or that kind of ghosh? Well, if you're that kind of ghosh, then how come you're, you, but we, we saw you visit that, uh, you know, low caste uh, family and eat lunch in that fa- with that family the other day. And we've seen you walk around with the, you know, young uh, wife in that family all the time. Like what's going on, right? So, so this kind of placing of, uh, or, or and and not just differentiation, but you know, a lot of people in India, uh, upon hearing that I was traveling to Bangladesh, um, would start sharing about their kin and relationships. And if there was someone in their family, you know, if a if a, a wife or a, a woman in the family had been married and had natal kin in Bangladesh, they would come forth and share that, and vice versa. In on the Bangladesh side. Upon hearing that, you know, I'm from Kolkata uh, and in quotes, Indian, Indian Bengali people would, uh, you know, many people would volunteer all kinds of stories about their Indian connections. Whereas, you know, so all this to say that there was no easy way I could predict how I would be read. But again, gender, whether it was marital status, a caste identity, religious identity, national identity, uh, you know, determined who responded to me in what way. And it was as revealing about them as it was about how they perceived and read me, right? And so to say to, to in a sort of American or sort of in, in the Western uh, Anglophone Academy, it might seem that I, in quotes, I'm a native anthropologist in that I am Bengali and I'm of the region, um, and a native, uh, you know, Bengali speaker, but that couldn't be further from the, it, it, I mean, it's just so simplistic and all of these different kinds of valences of our identity um, produced who I was and could be. And so I was, you know, it allowed me to be very close to some and, you know, there were a lot of people with whom I never, uh, gender, class, uh, various differences, um, uh, mediated the way I was able to perhaps not get to know or spend very much time uh, with certain groups of people. And that's, in in general, that is the nature of, I think, ethnography and anthropology. I think uh, feminist scholars particularly teach us that it's super important to be honest about these, not just in ethical terms, uh, but in reckoning with the kinds of analyses uh, we are able to have, both as a result of these, uh, both because and despite these. There are many more questions I could ask. There's a lot more we could talk about, but I think we probably have to end here. Thank you so much for joining me, Shahana. Wonderful uh, questions, Devin. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure talking to you.